Amen, amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, Haynes Creek. I hope you are doing well today. My name is Travis, and pastor here. If it is your first time, I want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, we are so thrilled and excited that you are here worshiping with us, and uh, I would love a chance to reach out and just say thank you so much for your visits. So if you do me a huge favor, uh, if you could, just let us know you're here. At some point during the service, you can do that uh, by texting the word welcome to the number you see on the screen. That's all you got to do. Just text welcome to that number at some point today, and that, again, lets me know that you're here. It gives me a chance to reach out, give you a call, and just say thank you so much for your visit. Uh, or if you prefer, we have our welcome cards over here on the table or outside next to the coffee. Uh, just fill one of those cards out, leave it wherever you found it. Uh, and again, that gives me a chance just to reach out and say thank you so much for your visit. So if you do me that favor, I would really, really appreciate that. Uh, but you find us walking verse by verse through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be finishing out Acts chapter 9 today. So we've been in Acts chapter 9 for a couple weeks now. Uh, thank you to Lee for preaching last week while I was out, but it's good to be back with you today. So in Acts chapter 9, as you're turning there, we've really been focusing on Saul, who we'll later know better as Paul, right? So we see at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, Saul's converted, right? This, this guy who's been persecuting the church, throwing Christians in jail, murdering Christians, like just wreaking havoc all over Jerusalem against the church. We see him radically captured by Jesus, right? Jesus changes his life. He puts his faith in Jesus, responds to the gospel, and now believes in Jesus. This guy who's persecuting Christians for believing in Jesus now believes, and, is, and as we saw last week, we see he's already getting his ministry started. He's already preaching. He's already going and proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is. He's already getting persecuted, which is going to be a staple of Paul's ministry, is suffering for the name of Jesus. We see that already, right away with Saul, as soon as he puts his faith in Jesus. But now the narrative kind of shifts, takes a hard left turn, and now we're, we're going from Saul to, to back to Peter. We haven't seen much of Peter, right? We haven't seen much of Peter since uh, really Acts chapter 4, some parts of Acts chapter 5. Uh, we see him mentioned briefly in Acts chapter 8, but we haven't really focused on Peter that much. But Peter's going to be the main character uh, from this point at the end of Acts chapter 9, carrying through the end of Acts chapter 12. So we're going to be with Peter here for a few weeks as we, uh, as we walk through these passages. But uh, let's go ahead and finish out Acts chapter 9 today. I'm going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 32, and we'll read it through the end uh, of the chapter here. So starting in verse 32, it says this, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Luda, where he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Luda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Luda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. 
Okay, so again, we see a, it's like a kind of a hard turn here, right? We go from Saul to now back to Peter. And in this, we, we see two miracles performed, right? Two amazing, incredible miracles. And I think sometimes we just kind of read stuff in the Bible like that, and we're just like, oh, yeah, cool, healed and raised from dead. All right, yeah, what's the next thing? Okay, moving on to the next thing. No, y'all, somebody paralyzed for eight years, raised up, fully healed. Person who was dead, now alive. That's amazing, Think of the last funeral you were at. The last funeral, imagine somebody walks in, kicks everybody out of the room, prays for a few minutes, calls you back in, and the person who was dead is alive. That's incredible. That's amazing. I don't think y'all get this. Y'all, that, somebody who was dead is now alive. Is that awesome? Can we get excited for Jesus a little bit? Come on, y'all. If resurrections don't get you excited, I don't know what's going to happen here. This is amazing. Like, we have to read the Bible with fresh eyes sometimes. Sometimes we just gloss over things and we're like, oh, yeah, I've heard that a hundred times. Yeah, I've heard that. This is amazing. This is what our God does. This is, the, this is the word of God here. This is true. This really happened. This is amazing. This should impact our lives, okay? So just right away, we see these two amazing miracles. Now, why would Luke do that, right? We've been talking about Saul and Paul and his conversion and the start of ministry, now, all of a sudden, we're back to Peter. He's in two cities outside of Jerusalem, and, and two miracles happen. Why would Luke include these stories? Well, I think he does it for a few reasons. One of them, uh, it gets us to where Peter needs to be at the start of Acts chapter 10, which is in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house. More on that next week, though. Something amazing, incredible happens in Acts chapter 10 that nobody saw coming. This is amazing. So make sure you're here next week as we dig into Acts chapter 10. So that's part of the reason it just kind of moves the narrative along and we get Peter to where he needs to be for what Jesus does in Acts chapter 10. We also see the expansion of the church, the expansion of the gospel, right? It's, it, remember, since uh, the persecution happened at the end of Acts chapter 7, this is no longer a Jerusalem-centric thing that is going on, right? It doesn't just stay in Jerusalem. We're, we're spreading out. The city of Luda is about 25, 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and Joppa is another 15 miles beyond that in the same direction. So we're, we're spreading out. What's also important, again, keep this in mind for next week, these cities that we're hearing, Luda and Joppa and Caesarea, these are places where more and more Gentiles are living. So again, keep that in mind as we get to Acts chapter 10. But I think what it, what it mainly shows us here, what it mainly shows us is, is what Jesus does in and through his believers. Now, Jesus still works powerfully today, just like he does through Peter in Acts chapter 9. This is what Jesus does. This is who he is. This is what he does. And he wants to use us in the same ways. And I think this is what this miracle teaches. It teaches us how Jesus works in and through the lives of his followers, of his believers, just like he does here with Peter. So that's what I want to focus on. What does this passage teach us about Jesus and how he works in our lives? Well, there's three things that we see here. I think we see Jesus's presence, Jesus's power, and Jesus's purpose. So the first thing, if you're taking notes, Jesus's presence. Jesus's presence this is the first thing we see in these miracles is, is that Jesus is there. Jesus is there. Peter makes a point to tell Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus is doing this. I know you're looking at me, you're seeing me, Peter, but Jesus is the one doing this. He's here with us. Before he tells Tabitha to arise, what does he do? He prays. He spends time in prayer. Jesus is with Peter and he is present in these moments. And this is a promise that Jesus has given all of his followers. 
all of his followers. One of the last things recorded that Jesus says to his disciples is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It's something we read and reference a lot around here because this this is the mission of the church. This is the mission for all believers. You, you put your faith in Jesus. This is what you were supposed to do with your life. The Great Commission. This is what we were all supposed to be doing. This is what it says. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There's the command. What are we supposed to do? What, it, what am I, Travis, as a Christian living in 2022, what am I supposed to do with my life? Make disciples of all nations. What are we as a church, what are all churches supposed to be doing? Making disciples of all nations. This is the command. These are our marching orders, right? This is what we are supposed to be doing. We're supposed to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And a lot of times we stop there. We stop reading right there. And that's, that's good stuff, right? Like that, that'll preach. I preached a sermon on that verse alone to you guys just a few months ago. Like that, that will preach. Go make disciples, baptize, teach them all about Jesus. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus keeps going. Well, how does this end? He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus gives us this, this big, huge purpose and calling to make disciples of all nations. How are we supposed to do that? We can't do that. No, we can't do that on our own. How would we do that? Do that through Jesus because he's with us. He's with us. He is always with us. It's a promise that he gives us, a promise that we can hold on to, that Jesus is always with us. Not about you, but I, I grew up in church, and I grew up, you know, with student ministry, youth pastors. They used to use this, I think, as a scare tactic, like, hey, Jesus is with you. Whatever you're doing, just Jesus is right there with you. Would you be doing what you're doing on Friday night if you knew that Jesus was with you? Well, he's with you. He's right there. Like, it was kind of a scare tactic. But this actually shouldn't scare us. It should bring us great comfort. It should bring us great comfort that Jesus Christ is with us always. So last week I was out of town, uh, Kendra, my wife, and our three kids. We got away, uh, went to the beach for a week, and it was awesome. We went to uh, uh, this area outside of Destin in, in Fort Walton. There's this, this cool resort with a pool and right by the beach. But it was kind of split in half because there's this main road that goes through Fort Walton and Destin. And part of the resort was on one side. The other part of the beach side was over here but they had this, this bridge that kind of went across. So we were on the pool side, which was a lot of fun. Kids loved that. It was really great fun. Uh, and then we would, you know, you could walk over to the beach side. So uh, we would do that each day. So uh, our, our youngest, Milo, she's uh, 18 months old almost, and she takes an afternoon nap. So we didn't want to make the kids have to, our older two, stay inside while she was napping. So in the afternoon, Kinder and I would kind of trade off, you know, who was inside uh, keep an eye on Mila, and, and the other one would take the kids to the beach or the pool or whatever. So the first day that we're there is, is Sunday last week, and uh, I, I had nap duty, so I was inside with Mila. She was napping, and Kendra decided to take the kids over to the beach. So to get to the beach, you had to go down the elevator where we were staying. You had to walk to another building. You had to go up another elevator. Then you had to walk across, and you had to go down another elevator through a parking garage, through the hotel, off the boardwalk, and then you were finally at the beach, right? So it's a little bit of a journey, all right? A little bit of a trek to get there. Plus, you're hauling all the stuff that you have to take with kids to the beach. Like, you don't just go there, and they're like, you know, what am I doing? I, I need my toys and chair and all the, all the things that the kids need, right? you got to haul all of that stuff with you. So Kendra does that. She's a trooper. She brings all of that over there to the beach, and I'm, I'm hanging out, you know, just reading, doing some whatever I was doing at the time. And I see the, the rain. You can kind of, in Florida, you can kind of see the rain coming. Uh, so we saw the rain coming, and it, it was raining a little bit, but it would, it would rain a little bit, and then it would stop, rain a little bit, and then it would stop. 
So Milo finally wakes up, and I text him. I'm like, hey, what do you want to do? It's been raining. Do you guys want to come back? She's like, oh, no, it's fine. It's just raining a little bit. No big deal. Bring the baby. Y'all come on. I was like, okay, sounds good. Sounds great. So I loaded in her stroller because, again, that's a, that's a long trek to carry her, and she, doesn't like, she wants to be out moving around. So you got to strap her in a stroller to keep her kind of locked into one place. So I load her in the stroller. By the time, again, you know, I got to go down a couple elevators. I, I go down the elevator. I go across the building. I go up the elevator to get to the bridge. By that point, by the time I get there, it is downpouring, y'all. Like, it is full-on monsoon downpour. And I'm texting her. I'm like, you sure you want me to come? She's like, oh, yeah, it's fine. No big deal. We're under an overhang at this other hotel right next door. Just walk across, go through the parking garage, and then come cut across where the beach is. It'll be fine. I was like, okay, sounds good. So I'm about to go. And all of a sudden, boom, this loud lightning. It had to be real close. Like, that thing was so loud. These little teenage girls were running across at that point. They jumped and screamed. It was kind of funny. I tried not to laugh at them. Uh, Milo was crying a little bit. Like, that's how loud it was. And I was like, nope, not coming. Not risking that. Not doing that. And, y'all, it was lightning for several minutes. So Kinder, during this time, I didn't know this, but I found out later. She was, you know, they were kind of huddled under an overhang. She was telling the kids, hey, you know, lightning, you know, we can't go out there because it's lightning. We've got to be safe. You know, that's what happens. They're sick. So you're trying to explain, like, you know, got to be careful when it's lightning. You don't want to get struck by lightning. That would be really bad. So they, like, really internalized that. And a couple days later, uh, we, I took them to the pool in the afternoon. It started, like, drizzling. You know, like, it's Florida. It rains every single day for a few minutes. So it was drizzling a little bit, and both of them were like, Dad, we got to go. Dad, we got to go. We got to get back. I'm like, it's barely raining. What are you doing? And they're like, no, it could lightning. It could lightning. We got to go now. I was like, all right, fine. Let's go now. So we're walking back. I'm like, Dad, we got we to gotta walk faster. Dad, we got to get back to the room. We got to get back. I'm like, what are you all so scared of? Like, Dad, lightning. Lightning. Lightning could strike us. I was like, okay. Okay. Yes, but that's like extremely rare. The chances of that happening are extremely low. It's going to be okay. They're like, no, Dad, like, so we're going back and forth. And finally, Livy, uh, my middle daughter, she, she looks at me and she goes, Dad, we're kids. We're allowed to be scared of lightning. I was like, okay, okay, fine. You can be scared of lightning. But I tried to comfort her, and I go, yes, you can be scared, but, but daddy's with you. I'm with you. I'll protect you. And both of them kind of looked at me like, yeah, no, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that. And you know, that's probably true, because what am I going to do if lightning strikes? Because it's like, we're all done at that point. So I got it, but it was kind of like, oh, no, I should, you know, I'm your dad. And they're like, no, dad, you're, you're not enough. But anyway, like that didn't bring them great comfort that I was with them. But look, this truth that Jesus is with us, Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, who is sovereign over all, all powerful, when he says, I am with you, that should bring us comfort. That should bring us comfort. Wherever we are, wherever we go, Jesus is with us. Whatever we have going on, Jesus is with us. This is the beauty of what, what Scripture teaches us, that, that, that Jesus is not some distant, far-off, uninterested, uninvolved God. He is close. He is near, and he deeply cares about everything that we have going on. He deeply cares about us. He cared about Aeneas. He cared about Tabitha. He cared about Tabitha's family and friends who were mourning her death. He is close, he is near, and he cares. Hebrews 4, 16 through, uh, 4, 14 through 16 says this. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love this passage. Jesus is our great high priest and he deeply cares. It says that he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That word sympathize means that, 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 he, that he feels what we feel. He feels what we feel. He understands all that we're walking through and feels it just like we do. He sympathizes with us. He wants to be close to us. He, he, he commands us here. He calls us here to draw near to him. He's close. He's close. He's, he's with us in our pain and our suffering. He's with us in our grief and our loss. Remember another story in scripture about somebody being raised from the dead, Jesus' friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. Well, what happens there? It's similar to this story, right? People reach out to Jesus and say, Jesus, come quick. By the time he gets to Bethany, Lazarus has already been dead. They've already done the funeral. They've put him in the tomb already. And Jesus goes there knowing full well that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he's lost his friend. His family and friends are mourning his loss as well. And what does it say? Jesus goes to the tomb. And in John eleven thirty five. 35, what does it say? It says, Jesus wept. He wept. Again, Jesus knows full well in a few seconds, he's about to call Lazarus out of that grave. But he cares so much. He feels what we feel. He feels our pain and our loss and our grief and our sadness and our hurts. He's right there with us. He's with us in our waiting. It can be hard to wait sometimes. I know some of y'all have been, been praying for a while about this thing, and it's hard to wait, and it's hard to be patient. It's hard to wait on the Lord. Jesus is with us in our waiting. He's with us in our loneliness and our depression and our despair. He is always with us. Look at what David writes in, in the famous Psalm, Psalm 23. It's the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Even though we walk through our lowest points in life, we can do so without fear. Why? Because we got this? because we can do it, because we can handle it. No, why? For you are with me. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is who our God is. This is who Jesus is. He's our good shepherd. He leads us. He guides us. He carries us through our darkest moments in life. He doesn't leave us to figure that out on our own. He, he is always with us, and we have that promise that we shall dwell with him forever. No matter where we go, no matter what Jesus calls us, no matter what path of ministry he leads us on. Just like Peter, wherever he takes us, wherever we go, he's with us. Whatever he calls you to do, he's with you. Whatever sacrifices he calls you to make, he's with you. Whatever hardship and pain and difficulty we're walking through, he's with us. 
No matter what we have going on, no matter where he leads us, he is with us. So the first thing we see here is Jesus' presence. The second thing we see here is Jesus' power. So Peter is the one, you know, he, he's in the room, right? He's, he's the one talking to Aeneas. He's the one talking to Tabitha's dead body. He's the one in the room. He, he's the one, you know, sort of doing the miracles, but not really, right? He's not really doing the miracles. Jesus is doing the miracles, right? Again, he, he makes a point to tell Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. As we already mentioned, before he says anything to Tabitha, what, what's he do? He, he prays. He spends a few minutes in prayer, and I, and I love that Luke gives us that little detail. Like, he didn't have to do that. Could have just said, you know, Peter goes up there, clears the room, tells Tabitha to get up, and calls everybody back in. Like, hey, girl, she's alive. But he includes this little detail that he prayed. He spent a few minutes in prayer. And I love that because what that reminds us of is what Peter deeply knew in that moment, that he can't do anything. He can't do anything. He's looking at a dead body. He can't do anything. He's got no power to raise this person up. He knows he can't do anything. He knows it's only by Jesus's power that anything can happen in that moment. So what's he do? He spends some time in prayer. He's dependent upon Jesus's power. Like we see this all over the book of Acts. We've already seen it. We've only spent nine chapters here, but we've already seen Jesus's power over and over and over again. And this is just another moment that reminds us that Jesus has all the power. He has the power over Aeneas' body, right? To heal it and allow him to get up and walk. And again, another, another important detail that, that Luke includes here is that Peter tells him to get up and then do what? Make your bed. Get up and make your bed. And Aeneas is not a teenager, right? Like, I need to be told that as a teenager. Travis, make your bed. I would often ignore that command from my parents, but Aeneas actually makes his bed. Why does Luke tell us to make his bed? This, this reminds us and tells Aeneas that his old bedridden life is over, is done with. Again, try to put yourself in, in this moment, in this mindset. Aeneas has been bedridden, paralyzed for eight years. Eight years. I'm sure by this point, he's just accepted, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is, this is all that I'm going to be. I'm just going to be stuck in this bed, on this mat, relying on everybody else in my life to do everything for me. I'm just here, laying here for the rest of my life until I die. But then Peter comes in, says, Jesus Christ has healed you. Get up and make your bed. Aeneas, you no longer are stuck in this bed. You're no longer just uh, supposed to stay here forever. This is, this is not where you are forever. This is not your end. This life is over with. Jesus has healed you. It reminds us of another healing that Jesus does in, in Mark chapter two, right? Where the, the, the paralytic comes in with his friends. There's a big crowd. They got to lower him down on his mat through the roof. Really cool story. What did Jesus tell him? He says, your sins are forgiven. Get up and take your mat home. This old life is over. You've been healed, you've been restored, you've been made new. Jesus has the power. Jesus has power over life and death, right? He has the power to bring Tabitha back to life. Jesus has power. If he can do that, if he can do that, if he can do these two things, plus all the other things that we see in Scripture, if he can do that, he can do anything. No matter what we have going on, he can handle it. He can handle it. Jesus is great and he's powerful. He's all powerful. He's got all power. And again, this, this should bring us comfort. 
Because here's what this tells us. If Jesus is great, because Jesus is great and Jesus is powerful, what that means is I don't have to worry anymore. I don't have to worry. It means because God is great, because Jesus is powerful, I don't have to be in control of everything. I don't have to carry the weight of everything. I don't have to do that. So what this tells us is no matter what I have going on in my life, no matter where I'm at, no matter what I'm walking through, we can trust that our God has the power to act and provide and to answer and and to come through and to fulfill all of his promises. He has the power to do that. And I can rest in that power. I can rest in that greatness. That's not always easy for us, though, is it? It's not always easy. I won't make you raise your hand, but, but just think, how many of us struggle with a little bit of control? Struggle with a little bit of control, maybe, maybe struggle to ask for help, struggle to rely on others. I'll admit, look, I'm, I'm there. I'll raise my hand. I, I struggle with that sometimes. It's hard to rely on other people. I don't enjoy asking for help. Because what that tells me and it tells everybody else is that I can't do this. And I don't, I don't like to admit that I can't do something. I don't want to admit that. But there are things I can't do, and I need to rely on others, right? Like, we, we know this. We know that the, the feeling that I have of being in control, that's just a feeling. It's not reality. I'm not actually in control of anything that happens at any point ever. You see that, like, so much as a parent with little kids. Like, I am, I think I have control. I have no control. Zero control. And my kids remind me of that every single day. We think we do, but we don't. Like, how, how, how many times do we struggle with this? Struggle to rely, struggle to ask for help. But this, this is the life we're to live in Christ. We are to live a life of dependency on him, to rely on him, to rely on his greatness, to rely on his power, not my own strength, not my own ability, but to rely on him. Now, how do we do that, right? It's easier said than that. How do we do that? Well, Peter shows us the way. How do we live this life of dependency? We do it with prayer. We do it with prayer. The way we rely on Jesus is we go to him with everything in prayer. We pray. Prayer reminds you of your dependency on Jesus more than anything else. You want to rely more on Jesus? Pray more. Bring more to him. This is exactly what we're told to do in scripture, right? Like sometimes I think, at least in my mind, I think that, well, you know, Jesus doesn't really care about that. I don't, you know, there's bigger things going on than this thing that I'm struggling with or this thing that I'm asking for, this thing that I'm praying for, this thing that I'm waiting on. God doesn't care about that. Nah, he's got bigger things to worry about. I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll leave him to do the big stuff. I'll just, I'll handle this little thing over here. No, Jesus wants us to bring everything to him. Paul writes in Philippians 4 that we are, we are to bring our request to God. He doesn't limit that by anything. He doesn't say, bring your request, uh, you know, pertaining to these matters, or, you know, as long as your request fits these dimensions, then you can bring them to God. No, he says, bring all of them. Bring them all to God. Bring them all to God. Jesus, when he teaches his disciples, when he teaches us to pray in Luke chapter 11, he tells us to ask, seek, knock. Those are active words. We're, We're to come to God by asking. We're to seek him. We're to knock until he answers. That's what prayer is. James 1 tells us to ask God. Then James 4 tells us we don't have certain things because we're not asking. So what do we do? We gotta ask. 
We got to ask. That's the point of prayer. We ask, we bring everything to God. The big stuff, the little stuff, the insignificant things, the, the monumental things in our lives, whatever we're feeling, whatever we're struggling with, whatever doubts, fears, questions, all of that stuff, we bring it to God. And we just dump it on him. Like that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to do this. And he wants us to ask boldly in his name, boldly in his power. Sometimes I feel like we, we, we pray these like little prayers where we're kind of tiptoeing around what we're asking. We're like, you know, I want to you know, ask for this, but, 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 but only in your will, Jesus. Only, according, you know, only do your will. I'm going to kind of ask for this, but, but ultimately it's your will. Ultimately it's your will. Like, guys, God's going to enact his will whether we say those words or not, okay? He's going to do what he's going to do, all right? He's going to do his will, his thing. It's not like, you know, I'm scared to ask for this thing because if I ask for it and it goes against God's will, then I'm going against God's will. He's going to give me something that goes against God. No, we're going to worry about that. He's just going to work all that out, okay? It's not like, hey, uh, Travis, I know you asked for this thing, but I was going to give you this way better thing over here, but since you asked for this thing, I'm going to give you this thing and withhold the really awesome good thing that I wanted to do for you because you didn't pray in my will. You didn't pray that, so, you know, I guess I'm not going to give you. The, no, that, that's not what Jesus does. That's not what Jesus does. This is not a bait and switch moment with prayer, right? That's not how it works. We can ask boldly in his name. That's the first part of power. Bring everything to God. That's the first part of prayer. Bring everything to God. Ask boldly in his name. Let's stop praying so small. Let's pray big, God-sized prayers, y'all. Let's ask boldly in his name, and then we trust. We ask, and then we trust. We ask Jesus, and then we trust him with the results. We trust him. We trust in his faithfulness. That, that, he, that he never abandons or turns his back on us. We trust in his goodness. That he's a good God. And as Luke 11 says, Jesus tells us himself in Luke 11 that he, that he wants to give us good things. He wants to give us good gifts. If, if we as imperfect parents know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more is the perfect God going to give his kids, his children, us, good things. We trust in his goodness, and we trust in his plan. We ask, and we trust in his plan that his ways are always what's best. His ways are always better. You know, we think we know what's good. We think we know what's best. God knows even better what's best for us. Like, we can come with the best plan for our lives, and God's plan for us is a billion times better than that. We can trust in his plan. So here's what this means. When we, when we pray, when we ask boldly in the name and the power of Jesus, we do so knowing that the answer that we want, the deliverance that we're asking for, the healing that we're praying for, the provision that we're looking for, it may come in this life. You know, it may come in this life. It, it came for Aeneas. It came for Tabitha and her family and friends. You know, it may, those things that we're asking for, it, it may come here and now, but it might not. It might not, and this is where trust comes in. This is where we trust in God's goodness and we trust in his promises because it might not come in this life. But here's the thing, we, we can trust that whatever the results are, whatever, whatever comes we can trust Jesus and we can trust and look forward to the promise of Jesus that one day he will fully heal, that one day he will fully restore, that one day he will fully make all things right. 
I love what, what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Jesus, through faith in him, he gives us hope. He gives us a living hope, hope here and now, right now in this moment, hope. But what is that hope based on? Is it based in the present? Is it based in what Jesus would do right now? No, no, no. It's based on a coming inheritance. It's based on a coming promise. It's based on a promise that's kept in heaven. That's what our hope is based on continues in verse six. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is attested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how can we rejoice in the trials? Because we're going to have trials. We're going to have hardships. We're going to suffer pain and loss and grief, and disappointments. The list could go on and on and on of all the junk that happens in this life, right? All the messiness, all the darkness that we walk through. How can we have joy? How can we have hope? How can we rejoice in the difficulties of the here and now? It's because we have hope of what's coming. We have hope of what's been promised to us. We have hope of an eternal life spent with Jesus forever, free from all sin, free from all pain and suffering and hardship, or he will wipe every tear from our eyes. He will make all things new. That's where we can have hope. So we ask and we trust. We ask and we trust. All right, so we see Jesus's presence. We see Jesus's power. And the third thing we see here is Jesus's purpose. So these miracles don't happen by accident, right? It's not like Jesus was just bored one day. So he's like, oh, there's Aeneas. You know, it has been eight years. I guess that's a long time. You know, let me go and heal, heal that guy. Oh, Tabitha died. Peter's there praying. Ah, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll heal Tabitha. Wasn't planning on that, but yeah, might as well. Got nothing else going on today, right? Like Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't bored, and that's why these miracles happen. Like that, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus has a purpose for all things. When he does something, including miracles, he does them for a reason. And these are no different. These are no different. So there's two aspects of Jesus's purpose that we see in these miracles. The first one is Jesus's purpose in salvation. Jesus's purpose in salvation. So here's the thing about salvation. Salvation that Jesus provides, it's holistic. It's holistic. It's not just a spiritual salvation, right? It's not just our souls, our spirit that needs saving from sin. Everything needs saving from sin. Like I think too often we, we see salvation in this, this limited, just my own personal salvation, my own, you know, get out of hell free card that I get from Jesus when I put my faith in him. Now, now my sins are forgiven and that's it, that, that's done. Now I get to go to heaven when I die and spend time with Jesus. Like that's it, that's the end of the salvation. No, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. See, sin corrupts everything. It doesn't just corrupt our spirit, it corrupts our, our physical bodies. 
It, it corrupts this physical world that we're living in. That's what Romans 8 said. Roman, Paul writes in Romans 8 that, that creation is groaning for Jesus to rescue and restore and save it. Everything is corrupted by sin. Everything is corrupted by sin. And Jesus wants to heal and save and redeem all of that. Salvation is holistic. And then these miracles point to the promise that Jesus will one day fully and completely save us, that he will restore all the brokenness. This is why we, we see the promise at the end of Revelation in places like Isaiah and the Old Testament, where, where when Jesus comes back, one of the things he does is he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. See, when we, when we put our faith in Jesus, we have this promise that we get to spend eternity with him. That eternity is going to happen on a newly created, perfected earth. He's going to heal everything. This includes us. This includes not just our spirit, but our bodies. We have this promise that's spoken of in Scripture. When Jesus comes back, we're going to be given what is called glorified bodies, perfected bodies that are free from all the decay of sin. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20, 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immorality. Immortality, sorry about that. Immortality. You don't want to put on immorality. That's, not, that's, that's, that's the opposite of what Jesus is going to do. Immortality. There we go, Travis. Well done. I can talk. It's all good. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, when Jesus comes back, one of the things he does is if we've already died before Jesus comes back, then we're going to be raised up with a new, glorified, perfect, imperishable body. We are going to live in eternity in bodily form. It's just going to be a perfected body, right? No more, no more sin corrupting our bodies, which means no more am I going to wake up with a sore back just because I slept funny, right? Like that's, what, that's, the, that's the bare minimum of what that means. Praise God for that, right? Amen to that. No more your joints going to be hurting. It's going to be difficult to walk around, move around. But no more of that. We're going to have perfected, glorified, fully restored bodies. That's awesome. Salvation is holistic. And again, these two miracles remind us of this truth. He, he heals Aeneas to show him that, that he will fully heal us one day. He will fully heal us. And he raises Tabitha to remind us of the ultimate resurrection, that death does not get the final word. Things are not over with death. Jesus is over death. He's greater than death. I, I, love, I love what he, he tells Aeneas to rise in verse 34. Look at verse 34. He tells Aeneas, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. If you underline things in your Bible or, or circle whatever, circle or underline that word rise. And then jump down to verse 40 and see what he tells Tabitha. He tells Tabitha in verse 40. But Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Again, if you underline or highlight in your Bible, circle or underline that word arise. It's the same exact word. Both times it's the same exact word. It's the Greek word anastemi, anastemi. That's the Greek word there, and it's the same word used of Jesus' resurrection. It's the same word. When you see Jesus' resurrection being spoken of, 
It's anastemi. When you see, and right here in this passage, you're told to rise and rise and get up. It's anastemi. It's the same kind of resurrection. It's pointing to the ultimate resurrection that Jesus would, will provide all of his followers. So if you continue reading in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that. Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. What that means is that all of Jesus' followers are going to follow in that resurrection, that one day we will have perfected, glorified, fully restored, healed bodies for all of eternity. That's what this points to. So these, per- these miracles remind us of Jesus' ultimate purpose in salvation. Second thing it reminds us of Jesus' purpose is his purpose for us, his purpose for us, his followers. So some of the miracles that we see in Acts, yes, are, are, are unique to Acts that, you know, maybe we won't see them always or, or often or, you know, specific instances of this we might not see again. But, but here's what we do see in Acts. What Acts reminds us of is the powerful Jesus in the book of Acts still wants to use his followers in the same way today. He still wants to use us in powerful ways. He uses Peter here to mediate miracles, and he wants to use us as well. He wants to use his followers He wants to use us to carry out his word and his ministry to this world. He wants to use us to to serve others, to care for others, to encourage others, to love others, to provide for others. And we go on and on and on in the many ways that Jesus wants to use us. He wants to use us. And he wants to use us powerfully. He wants to use us. The, The powerful Jesus of the book of Acts is still active Today, he's still active in the lives of his believers today, and he wants to use you in powerful ways. He still wants to use us. He wants to use us to advance his mission. Look at what, uh, again, look at what these miracles accomplish. Verse 35. Verse 35. After this miracle, what happens? And all the residents of Luda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Verse 42. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. What happens as a result of these miracles? People put their faith in Jesus. People are saved. People are rescued. And Jesus wants to do the same thing today through us. Through these miracles, Jesus uses Peter to bring the good news of the gospel to these cities. And people all over these cities, all over this region, are putting their faith in Jesus. And Jesus wants to use us the same way. We carry that same message of salvation, that same message of healing and hope. He wants to use us to advance his mission. And how do we do it? How do we do it? Real simple. We do exactly what Peter did, which is just follow Jesus. That's all Jesus wants from us, is people willing to faithfully follow him wherever he leads us, however he leads us. And as we go, we bring this message of hope and healing and salvation to a broken world. That's all he requires of us. You want to be used by Jesus in a powerful way? Be a willing and faithful servant just like Peter. Come to Jesus with open hands. Say, use me however you want. Lead me wherever you want. And then we follow. That's all we got to do. Jesus is going to take care of the rest. That's all he wants from us is just a willingness to faithfully follow him. So it's Jesus, like we said, it's Jesus that we see in Acts chapter nine. It's the same Jesus 
today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His power is the same. And he still wants to work in power in this world and through the lives of his followers. He still wants to bring life where there's death. He wants to bring healing where there's brokenness. And he uses us, his followers, to do that. Now, look, there's brokenness all around us, right? We don't have to look hard for brokenness. We don't have to look hard for people walking through pain and hurt and grief and despair and doubt and fear and anxiety and depression and go on and on and on. That's all over. That's all around us. Let's be like Peter. Let's be like Peter and willingly follow Jesus into the dark and difficult places to bring Jesus' light and his message of hope and healing and life to this world. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to step into a moment of worship and, and what we do every single time we gather, which is a time of communion. As we end today, as we conclude our time together, I just want to remind all of us in here that this, this time of worship and communion, that this is a time for believers. This is a time for us who have put our faith in Jesus to come to the tables to remember what he's done for us, to celebrate his sacrifice, his death on the cross, his salvation that he alone provides. And we worship him for that. So if you're here and you're not a believer, I just want to say, I'm so thankful that you're here. Thank you for being here. I want you to keep coming. But this time at the tables, it's not for you. It's not for you. It's just for believers. But if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I just want you to know today can be the day of your salvation. All Jesus asks is for us to put our faith in him. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And all we do is by calling on the name of the Lord, we just say, Jesus, I trust in you for salvation. I'm not looking for that anywhere else. I'm trusting in you. If you have questions about that or you want to do that, please come talk to me. Talk to really anybody in this room. We'd love to talk with you about that. Now for believers in the room, as we step into this time, I'm going to pray for us. Alex and Ben are going to come back up and lead us in a time of worship. And for the believers in the room, here's what I would ask of you today in this moment. Spend time in prayer. Spend some time just praying and worshiping Jesus. Maybe you need to, to repent of some sin, some ways that you, you've, you've gone off course, you've gone away from Jesus, you've forgotten about him, you've lived your life apart from him. Maybe you need to, you need to come back. You need to come back to him. Maybe you just need to spend some time praying and, and bringing those things to Jesus. Maybe, maybe you've been carrying too much. You've been trying to carry the weight of the world, you need to, to give that to Jesus. Maybe you need to spend some time in prayer to the good shepherd and just laying your hurts and your pain and your suffering that you're walking through right now. I know some of y'all are walking through some dark days right now. Jesus is with you. He can handle whatever we've got going on. He can handle our questions. He can handle our doubts. He can handle our anger and our frustration. He can handle all that. He wants us to bring all that to him. So maybe you just need to spend some time bringing these things to Jesus. And, and as you're ready, church, as you're ready, believers, you can come to either side of the room where the tables are. You take the elements, you take the, the bread and the cup, you eat and you drink, and you remember Jesus' broken body on the cross. You remember his shed blood for you, and you remember and you celebrate and you worship the salvation that Jesus alone provides.
Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for your word today. Jesus, I thank you for what we see here in Acts chapter 9. Lord, that we see you, Lord, our, our Savior, somebody who works powerfully in this world. Lord, and I know that you want to continue to do that. You are doing that in many ways, in many ways that, that I and we don't ever see Jesus. So we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would be like Peter, that we would be a willing servant for you and for your name, Lord. Would you use us in whatever way you see fit? Would you lead us wherever you want us to go? Would this church be an example of what it looks like to faithfully follow you all of our days, Lord? We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all you've done, Jesus. We love you. We praise your name today. In your name we pray.